welcome to The Family Planning Files, a podcast from the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. The National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is one of the training centers funded through the Office of Population Affairs to provide programming to enhance the knowledge of Title X and other family planning staff. I'm your host, Katherine Atchison. In this podcast, part of our July 2021 Clinician Cafe on Polycystic Ovary Syndrome Across the Lifespan, we'll be discussing PCOS and its intersection with obesity and obesity-related disorders, and the importance of early detection and management for patients. Our guest today is Angie Golden, DNP, FNPC. Dr. Golden has over 40 years of clinical experience, 20 of which are with her own practice, NP From Home, LLC, and for the past seven years with a subspecialty obesity practice, NP Obesity Treatment Clinic, both of which are located in Arizona. In addition to her clinical practices, Dr. Golden is a current fellow and past president of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. She has also authored numerous articles and presented nationally and internationally on a variety of nursing topics, including leadership, health policy, and clinical issues. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Golden. We're so excited to have you here today. I am so honored that you would invite me. I'm excited for us, our conversation to move forward. So just to start, can you give our listeners an overview of the link between PCOS and obesity and its related disorders? So I think our listeners, because of who the audience is, truly understand that PCOS is a metabolic disorder, but so is obesity. So when you put two metabolic disorders together, and many of our patients have both, you really increase that cardiometabolic risk. And I think because of that, it's really kind of an amplification. So obesity amplifies the cardiometabolic risk for patients with PCOS. And I know that when I'm talking to my own patients, that's really kind of one of their take-home messages is when they start to recognize how those two diseases can intersect with each other. I think another piece that can be really helpful to our listeners is to understand that obesity is the most common cause of insulin resistance. And I know we all think of COVID as a pandemic, but the World Health Organization has actually acknowledged obesity as a global pandemic. And it is likely causing these higher rates of PCOS diagnosis that we all are seeing. PCOS is an obesity-related complication. So what makes the manifestation of obesity different with women who have PCOS versus women without PCOS? You talked a little bit about that intersection. Can you go in depth there? I I have to warn you, I'm a little bit of a pathophysiology geek. So pull me off the ledge if I start to go too deep into here. But I think You know, pathophysiologically, when we talk about obesity, increasing insulin resistance, I think it's interesting that most people are totally unaware that that generates elevated testosterone. And that, again, is so much a part of PCOS. So when we look at women with PCOS, we almost always see visceral adiposity. Whether they have met the criteria of a BMI of 30 or greater their waist circumference is greater than 35 inches. So they have visceral adiposity and that's where the sick adipose tissue lives for obesity. So thinking that way, what we find is that women with obesity have a more severe phenotype of PCOS likely due to that visceral adiposity. 
They have more severe menstrual irregularities, infertility, unfortunately, more miscarriages. They also have higher levels of pregnancy-induced hypertension, gestational diabetes, and actually, you can see in labs, biochemical and clinical hyperandrogenism. So we see that, and then we can see higher glucose levels, higher insulin levels. So we really can see that women with obesity and PCOS have those higher levels. So we can see, again, that interconnection. Now, women with obesity without PCOS, they just have lower levels of those things. So I think that clearly it makes a big difference to have these two cardiometabolic insulin-resistant endocrine disorders occurring together. Kind of going into a little bit of the epidemiology, what is the prevalence of women with PCOS who experience issues with obesity? And are there differences in prevalence across categories such as race or socioeconomic class or other strata? The data says that approximately 50% of women with PCOS have pre-obesity, what's often called overweight or obesity. But I'm going to guess that if most of us used the waist circumference versus the BMI, we probably will see that number be higher. And we can see that in some smaller studies that raise that percentage closer to that 75%. PCOS itself has a higher prevalence in African-American women than in white women. However, Hispanic women have the highest PCOS and a more severe phenotype. Now, if we step back and look at obesity, we see the same issues for race or ethnicity. We see Black American women, people of color, whether men or women, but since we're talking about PCOS, I'm staying with the female population. In the Hispanic and Black American population, we do see much higher levels of obesity. So I think with that in mind, it's not hard to understand why we would also be seeing higher numbers in PCOS, with PCOS being a obesity-related complication. And moving on from obesity to the related metabolic syndrome, can you define a metabolic syndrome for us? And can a woman with PCOS experience metabolic syndrome that's related to her disorder, but not have obesity either related by BMI or that waist circumference? Yeah. So metabolic syndrome, you have to have three of the five items in order to get that diagnosis. You need to have elevated blood sugar, low levels of HDL cholesterol, high levels of triglyceride, a waist circumference greater than 35 inches in women, and then hypertension is the fifth one. So three of those five are required in order to have the diagnosis of metabolic syndrome. But again, metabolic syndrome is about hyperinsulinism. And if we look at PCOS and we look at obesity, both of those have that endocrine dysfunction underlying the disease. So insulin resistance is an important aggravating factor in PCOS. And we need to be really clear that it can be an aggravating factor and the woman with PCOS not have obesity. So they can still have that insulin resistance, even if they don't have obesity. But now we've got three endocrine disorders, and they often co-occur in so many of our patients. 
And I think so much of the time, what I think is a pretty important one is that insulin resistance is not a constituent of the PCOS diagnostic criteria. And yet we know it's very much a part of the large percentage of our patients who have PCOS as part of their metabolic dysfunction. So I think understanding that all three of those can occur concurrently or two out of three But when they are all occurring together, they worsen each other. So that underlying cardiometabolic dysfunction is so much more difficult to treat in our patients with the three that can come together. And I think that that's what makes PCOS, obesity, metabolic syndrome, when you start to see them concurrently, it makes it more difficult for the patient and for us as their care providers. Well, that's a really great intro into our next question. PCOS and obesity are well-known contributing factors to many cases of female infertility. How can diabetes and metabolic syndrome add on to that, and how can they all interact together to affect infertility? I think I'll start with how PCOS, obesity, and diabetes interact together, because I think that helps lead us into what happens into fertility issues. So when we look at insulin resistance, and every patient with PCOS is at a risk for this metabolic syndrome, but it's amplified when we add obesity to it. So we're on a continuum. I guess that's the best way to put it. When people have obesity, they're on a continuum of insulin resistance out to type 2 diabetes. Now, if we add metabolic syndrome or PCOS, we move them along that continuum faster. So their risk of diabetes occurring earlier in life is a higher risk. But I think there's another piece that we often don't recognize that we need to be aware of, especially when we're talking about infertility and or miscarriages. And that's that hyperinsulinemia as its own standalone is responsible for much of the dyslipidemia that occurs. And those two combine raise the level of PA1, which is the plasminogen activator inhibitor. And in patients with PCOS, we see that elevation putting those patients at risk for intravascular thrombosis, which may be some of why we see increases in miscarriages, but it's definitely why we see increases in DVTs and pulmonary embolus. Now, I'm going to go a little deeper into pathophysiology because I think that it's important when we get to the reproductive part. When we look at insulin resistance, there are different pathways in insulin resistance. And I think sometimes we all think there's just insulin resistance, all one thing, but it's not. And some people have suggested that with obesity, PCOS, or metabolic syndrome, we should be thinking of it as metabolic insulin resistance. Because what we think it does is that it interferes with one specific pathway, leaving the other insulin pathway unaffected. And that's the mitogen-activated protein kinase, or MAPK. And the problem with MAPK pathway for insulin is that it is a pathway that results in atherogenic, steroidogenic, and mitogenic effects, which increase hyperadrenogic and reproductive dysfunction in PCOS. So that's the only reason I really bring that pathophysiology into the picture, because we need to understand that insulin is one of the big hormones when we talk about reproduction for women. And most people don't even think of it that way. 
we think of it just as part of glucose regulation. It's so much more powerful than that. I think probably all of our audience is intimately involved with how PCOS contributes to female infertility. So when we add obesity to it, obesity, again, I know I I get kind of excited about pathophysiology, but I think it just is so awesome to really understand how these diseases are impacting cellularly our patients. But obesity actually sensitizes the fecal cells to the stimulation of luteinizing hormone. And that amplifies the ovarian excessive circulating testosterone. So it upregulates ovarian androgen production. And we know that that's often the basis of why we have so much infertility with PCOS. Now we add what obesity does to that. And we can clearly see just how powerful this combination can be for our patients when we see them in conjunction with each other. But the exciting part, I lay all that as the baseline of what becomes so exciting for me. And that is that women with PCOS who start to get obesity treatment and have that loss of abdominal fat, that visceral adiposity, can have resumption of ovulation. I mean, to me, that's just like, it's one of the miracles. It's why I treat obesity, because I can have such a dramatic impact on quality of life. Well, that's a great intro to our next question. What should clinicians keep in mind about these associated conditions when they're seeing a patient who either has a diagnosis of PCOS or they strongly suspect has PCOS when she's in for family planning services? And when should she provide a referral to someone like you who treats patients with obesity? So first, I think what's really important is that a modest weight loss, 5 to 10%, can improve almost all the features of PCOS. So if you take a young woman who's come into you and she's at 200 pounds, I mean, her BMI is 35, 36, we're talking about a weight loss of 10 to 20 pounds. We're not talking about 50 pounds of weight loss. And she can start to already impact ovulation as well as so many of the other features, including what I think what a lot of women come to me about is their hair growth. They don't like all the hair growth they have. Now, it can take more weight loss to impact that dramatically, but they can start to see a difference at about that 5 to 10% weight loss. And I'm very cautious. And when we're talking family planning, If you are treating someone and you're working with them on weight loss, you need to be sure that they truly understand that a 5% weight loss can facilitate ovulation. So if they want to be in a family planning way where they are truly planning what's going to happen in the future, then you need to be very cognizant that they need a pregnancy prevention plan in place. They may think, oh, I can't get pregnant because of my obesity. First of all, that's not true. They can get pregnant. But obesity and PCOS together, just a small amount of treatment and an unexpected pregnancy could occur. So I think that that's one of those take-home messages. And you ask about referrals. So I think the referrals that most of our patients end up with is probably endocrinology, a reproductive medicine specialist, or an obesity specialist. The vast majority of obesity treatment should be occurring in primary care which women's health nurse practitioners are primary care. OBGYN physicians are 
primary care for many women. So there's no reason that the majority of obesity treatment can't be occurring there. But I think any patient with severe or rapidly progressing virilization, like the development of male physical characteristics, needs to get referral because a lot of testing needs to happen. In my practice and much of the literature, it's recommended that a testosterone level that's twice the upper limit of normal probably needs an endocrinology referral because it most likely has something besides obesity and PCOS in its underlying problem. And I also think, at least for me in my primary care practice, if my first line measures for cycle control or androgen excess have failed, I really want to get a specialist on board. Now, for me as a primary care family nurse practitioner, I'm probably going to be referring to a women's health nurse practitioner or a local OBGYN. For the audience that we have where so many are women's health experts, they may be very comfortable going past that first line. But that is what we look at in the literature. And then I think, obviously, patients who desire fertility and even despite some obesity treatment are still, after six months, unable to conceive, then referring to a reproductive medicine specialist. And then I also think that the severity of diabetes, sleep apnea, which I haven't really mentioned, but sleep is so important to reproductive health, to treating obesity. When those are there, then referrals out to specialists for that. And then, of course, we should be monitoring all of these patients for depression. Depression often is a coexisting condition with PCOS, with obesity. And so making sure we've done a screen for that and if necessary, refer out for treatment for that. Well, your point about women's health, nurse practitioners, OBGYNs, the kind of people who work in Title X being primary care providers is a great, again, entry into our next question. You know, it's it's very easy for a physician or nurse to say you need to lose some weight. But what's the sort of lifestyle change and guidance, uh, those sort of solid steps they can offer a patient so she can get started on that journey to address her obesity as it relates to her PCOS? So I would say the first step is for everybody to understand obesity is a chronic neuroendocrine disorder. It's not a behavioral willpower disorder. And that's why saying you just need to lose some weight doesn't work or eat less, move more. If that worked, we wouldn't have the pandemic of obesity. So the first step is to learn for ourselves as providers that obesity is a chronic disease that has endocrine underpinnings. The second piece is to have a way to explain that to patients. And I will warn you, you need to be sure you have lots of Kleenex because most patients have had tremendous stigma around healthcare facilities and obesity. In fact, many don't even want to come into the healthcare environment because it's not a safe environment for them. They have had a lot of bias and stigma around how they're treated. So helping them understand that it's not because they're weak, it's not because they don't have willpower, it's because they have a chronic endocrine disorder like PCOS. In fact, your audience will appreciate the fact that I once heard a physician say, if you think you are so powerful to control the hormones of weight and appetite regulation, then I want you to go home tonight and pop out an egg because those are hormones that cause that too. So I think that helps bring into perspective for all of us the hormonal nature of obesity 
as well as the hormonal nature of everything that you all are treating every day around family planning. But let's get really into the lifestyle and the guidance a clinician can give. First is to help patients understand how food impacts their metabolism. And I have what I call my five guiding principles. The first thing I do with patients is help them minimize the intake of highly processed foods. We know that that affects the gut microbiome and the inflammation of the intestines. And then encourage consumption of whole foods, teaching patients how to shop the exterior of the grocery store. You know, not everybody can afford fresh fruits and vegetables, but going with frozen versus those in a can. So again, that reducing some of that processing. Encourage the consumption of high fiber, complex carbohydrates, not simple sugar-filled carbohydrates. Emphasize reading labels. I love that we've got these new labels that are out there that say how much sugar is in something. That can really help patients recognize that. But I also have them look at the ingredients. You know, if there's 15 ingredients they can't pronounce, that's a processed food. (laughs) So maybe back away from some of those. And then my final guiding principle for starting nutrition therapy and the management of obesity is to help patients beware of marketing claims. We all want a quick fix to our obesity. And one of my disclosures is I am a woman with obesity and I'm in maintenance, but it's a daily treatment regimen to keep my weight down. And it would be really easy to find that next great advertised thing that was going to keep my weight off for the rest of my life. And it's not there. Now, increasing activity is the second step. The Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion have a Move Your Way program. It is a phenomenal program that helps patients find their way to move. But it also does it in little bits. So five minutes a day. It doesn't start with 150 minutes. So five minutes a day. And what I love the most about it is that it really has people look at what is their enjoyment. Now, activity doesn't do a lot for the active treatment of obesity, but in maintenance, it's about 50% of the effort. So we have to start early. But what does activity do? Well, in the case of what we're talking about, obesity, PCOS, metabolic syndrome, it directly impacts insulin resistance. So we want to get them moving because we can impact insulin resistance. Here's the third piece. And I think it's the piece that every woman's health provider that I have ever had the opportunity to see as a patient and every nurse practitioner, the two combined, follow up. Have your patient come back, assist them on this journey, help them see where their roadblocks are and how to get around them. We call that intensive lifestyle intervention, but I just call it supporting the patient being a partner with the patient. Now, PCOS symptoms often improve with about a 5 to 10% weight loss. That can happen with those three components. However, many patients will need pharmacotherapy and or bariatric surgery to support their long-term maintenance of weight loss, and especially for patients who need more weight loss than the 5 to 10%. Then we're going to have to look at pharmacotherapy. And if we're into the point where people need 25 to 40% or more, that's really only achievable in today's world through bariatric surgery. So you may be referring people to bariatric surgery programs, or if they're unresponsive to the lifestyle medicine treatment to an obesity specialist. I have one last thing that I would like 
to recommend to everybody. And that's to understand metabolic adaptation. So some of you out there have actually struggled with your own weight. And you know that you've lost 20 pounds and it went out and found five friends and came back. That's called metabolic adaptation, not lack of willpower. There's actually pathophysiology that causes that, you guys. The inflammation that occurs in the hypothalamus causes the brain to want to push your weight back up. And it does that by increasing the hunger hormone of ghrelin. So you are hungrier after you've lost weight. So there's a biologic reason that we get that weight regain. So help your patients understand this is a lifelong treatment. And yes, weight regain can occur, but don't let it all come back before you reinstitute your treatment. Well, this has been super, super informative, Dr. Golden, but unfortunately, our time is running a bit short today. But before we go, what are some good places you would recommend for clinicians to go if they're looking for more information about PCOS and obesity and ways that they can help their patients? So I think that the NIH has a resource center for PCOS, wonderful resources on there, and they're great for patients too. And then the Endocrine Society has the hormone.org, and they have a PCOS Awareness Association. I use that a lot for my patients. Of course, ACOG, and then the Move Your Way that I talked about. I think that that's another one to help people get that movement instituted for them. And what would you say is your top takeaway or two for our listeners as they go forward and get back into their own clinics? So I guess assure you're evaluating patients with PCOS for obesity and addressing it. It's the first thing we see. It's the last thing we treat, but be sure you're addressing it. Knowing that even small amounts of weight loss can make a huge difference in the cardiometabolic benefits. So partner with your patients to do that. And then I think one thing we didn't talk about that would be a final takeaway is look for medications you're already using for PCOS that might benefit in weight loss and insulin resistance, like metformin. And then the GLP-1 receptor antagonist if you have a patient that has diabetes. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Golden, and sharing your time and expertise. Thank you for having me. For more content, including previous episodes from The Family Planning Files, search for The Family Planning Files podcast or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For transcripts of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, visit our website at www.ctcfp.org. You can also follow the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning on social media on Twitter at NCTCFP, all lowercase, and sign up for our monthly newsletter, Clinical Connections, on our website. This training is supported by DHHS grant number 5, FPTPA 006029-03-00. The contents of this podcast solely represent the views of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the Department of Health and Human Services, or DHHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH, or the Office of Population Affairs, or OPA. No official support or endorsement of DHHS, OASH, and or OPA for the opinions or products described in this podcast is intended or should be inferred.
Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of The Family Planning Files. 